Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. It's been a really long-standing ambition of mine to pull together a group of individuals to talk about the F-15E Strike Eagles Baptism of Fire out in the deserts of Iraq in January 1991. So I'm really pleased to be bringing you this episode where we've got four guests who do exactly that. We did want to talk about, or I did want to talk about, the losses that the Strike Eagle experienced. They lost some jets and some crews. And to honor those individuals, I wanted to talk about that and try and get the story behind those losses. That's something they were keen to do, but unfortunately we ran out of time and it wasn't something that we were able to do. That said, uh, Yogi, who's one of the guests you'll see, he was responsible for standing up the Strike Eagle Weapons School. And uh, I may end up coming back with him and doing a dedicated episode where we talk about the experience of putting together the weapon school for the Strike Eagle. And if I do that, then I'll ask him to talk about the losses at the same time, because I think he has a pretty good handle on all of them. Well, all the guys do, but but Yogi in particular, because I think he's spent some time talking to some of those other guys as part of his uh, weapon school background. Anyway, just a quick reminder that this is free. I'm not making any money out of it, and you're not paying any money for it. And I don't think you should do either. But you can return the favor, so to speak. Um, if you like this episode, then give it a thumbs up and share it with somebody. Um, even more helpful is to drop a comment because that works with the algorithms and gets this content promoted to other like-minded individuals. And if you're listening just to the podcast version, you can also help by just leaving a review. I know obviously you can't subscribe or necessarily like, but you can leave a review of the channel to let other people know that the content that we provide is worth listening to. Finally, Boggy, I hope you get well soon. Enjoy. Gentlemen, welcome to 10% True. Thanks so much for joining me on this special uh, about taking the F-15E Strike Eagle to war. This follows hot on the heels of my interview with uh, Junior, who talked about bringing the aeroplane into service and teaching the first crews who then went back to Seymour Johnson to fly the aeroplane. And of course, a year or so later, you guys went to war in it. So that's the purpose of this conversation. But before we start that, can you do a quick intro? Let us know who you are and, and what your background is um, in the airplane. Hey, I'm Mark uh, Yogi Allred. Uh, I was in the second class that went through Luke, came back as the first uh, operational weapons officer in the Strike Eagle at Seymour Johnson in the 336 Fighter Squadron. Uh, did a lot of the prep work. Uh, once we got told we're going to Saudi, um, and obviously, once we got there, I kind of became the uh, the the planner. Uh, so I'd spend some time in Riyadh uh, at RSAF headquarters, uh, and then go down and fly for a while, then go back to RSAF. And so I, I spent a lot of time in the back of a C-130 
uh, once we got over to, to Saudi Arabia. But uh, that's kind of basically it uh, uh, for me, Reno. Thank you. Um, Reno Pelletier, the um, flu F4s and then the Strike Eagle. I was in a, I thought, the third class of the um, uh, Strike Eagle in the first class out of the triple nickel and um, had fun and had about two thousand, oh, a little over 2,000 hours in the Strike Eagle over time. All right. Shmeet. Shmeet. All right. My name is uh, Mike Smith, call sign Smy. Um, I flew the F-4 and the F-15E. Um, let's see here. And my experience at Dead Storm, just real quick, I, I flew part of the time and I worked at the THCC part of the time as the FIDO, so the fighter duty officer. So uh, um, I can give you a little insight on that kind of stuff. Got about 2,000 hours total of flying time uh, with all my miscellaneous airplanes. Necklace. Yeah, Ned. Uh, Nicholas Rudd, uh, I got about 2,000 hours of fighter time. I got 1,000 in the various models of the F-4. I flew the C, D, E, and G, which just about covers it. I don't have any Navy time. but uh, <laughs> And then I uh, did a tour flying a Humvee, which got me into the Strike Eagle. Uh, I got about 1,000 hours in the Strike Eagle, uh, a couple hundred hours in Desert Storm. Uh, unlike the rest of these guys, I was not a uh, on-site at Seymour convertee from the F4. So when I got to Seymour, I was a FNG, a new guy, and uh, all those other guys knew each other. But anyway, and I went into the second squadron. These guys liked that I said that the second squadron. <laughs> but it, what 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 I meant was the second squadron at Seymour to convert, and. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm the only chief in this group, but I will tell you, it's great to see all these guys. Um, it, it's, it's awesome uh, to, to reconnect. But anyway, glad to be here. A couple thousand hours of fighter time, a thousand in the Strike Eagle, and some Desert Storm experience, which we'll talk about today. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I'm still in touch with Steve Pingle. Uh, I, I talked to him once or twice a year, and... I too have got CD and G time in the F4, uh, so that we're we're a little more more similar than we even think than we even think we are. Uh, yep, that's right. And so, just for the the historical context, then, so the first squadron to convert was the 336 Tac Fighter Squadron, the Rocketeers. Second squadron was 335th, the Chiefs. And that's so, correct. yeah. And I've already had to just so everyone at home knows this before we hit record. I had to stop them from telling the war stories because they they just got straight into it. So I I feel like this is going to be a good episode. So, so without further ado, then, so so when I finished talking to Junior, as I said in the intro, he was talking a little bit about getting you guys ready to go and fly the airplane over at Seymour Johnson, and there was a difference in opinion around you know tactics and how the airplane would be employed, that kind of thing. There was obviously a short period of time between its entry into service, its initial operating capability, and you going off to the desert in August 1990. Can you give us a brief overview then of what you were doing with the airplane at Seymour? What was the expected mission and what were the sort of tactics that you were developing on your own in that respect? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. I, like, like I said, I was the first weapons officer, so I was kind of responsible for employing the airplane once we got started at, at, at Seymour Johnson. And, and you know, the, 
the integration of all of us coming back was was fairly unique. Uh, and that I mean, like I jumped in the back seat with Dick Andrig when I got back. We went out and flew a mission, did four or five different things, and comes back and goes, "You're an instructor in all phases of the Strike Eagle, yada yada yada." Uh, and so that was kind of my checkout. I mean, I've been an instructor in the F4 for a long time, but that was kind of how we how we had to handle getting some guys checked out so we could build up the instructor cadre to be able to do the stuff you have to do to get MR in the airplane. When we got the airplane at Seymour Johnson, it was qualified to do absolutely nothing but fly. Uh, it was I was certified to carry slick Mark 82s, and that was basically it. Uh, and so we did a lot of uh low level training in in west virginia and north carolina and whatever out to dare county range dropping bombs 10s 20s 30s unfortunately we did a lot of stuff that was in my opinion very very similar to what we did in the f4 except like the rockets when we when we left the f4 we were doing close to 70 percent air to air and 30 percent air to ground uh, and so one of my first stories with Rusty Bolt, if you, if, if, if everybody can tolerate it, <laughs> we, you know, Chuck Horner, the ninth air force commander at the time had threatened people with not losing one of these airplanes, you know, 55, $60 million airplane at the time. Uh, and, and squad commanders were scared to death. Uh, and Rusty fit that category. Uh, and so, you know, Horner came to Seymour, uh, it's probably within three or four months after we got back, uh, and wanted to talk about employing the airplane and me and Polowitzer and Rusty, and I think it was Smiley Deloney were in a briefing room with General Horner. Uh, and of course I'm kind of going, sir, the airplane will do 10 a hundred times what it would do in the F4. And you're telling us we can't do any air to air. I said, it's just stupid. I said, it's going to cost us airplanes in combat if we ever have to go to combat because my guys won't be ready to employ an AIM-9 or an AIM-7 or an AMRAM or whatever. If you don't do it, you can never be good at it. Uh, and you know, he just railed. And, and of course, Rusty is turning 14 shades of red because <laughs> I opened my mouth. Uh, <laughs> You know, and and I'm not just the the little mouse in the corner sitting there with my mouth shut, listening to what's going on. But I thought it was hugely important. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think the first kills in Desert Storm should have been us. Uh, the MiG-29 MiG and the MiG-23, they got in the middle of my 22 ship. We should have taken both of those out. And they were shot by F-15C guys coming in at 40,000 feet, shooting down into the middle of my 22 ship. We had guys that shot A-9s at the MiG-29, uh, Spitter. It was, no, not Spitter, but... Uh, Matt Mark Real. Uh, yeah. uh, Mark, Matt, Mark, Mark, Mark. Matt, Matt Real, I think, with no. Clute. No, no, I think what, Matt what, passed on the shot. He had yeah, a jelly bag. Um, um, Dipper. Mark, uh, what was, yeah, Dipper. Was Dipper. Dipper. Dipper was right in front of me on the way out on the first night, and he gets a tone... And and fires it, but about the time he's hitting the pickle button to fire this missile, the tone goes away. Because, I mean, I went back and looked at his tape when we got back in the room and all that kind of stuff. And so his missile comes off and, and splashes into the ground. But to get back to the story, uh, the reason I'm having this conversation with Horner, and, and what Rusty didn't know is Horner and I had been in a bar five or six times before. 
And if you knew General Horner, he didn't want you to cower and, and back away from him. He, he, was, he was a fighter guy. He wanted you to get in his face and go, F you, this is what we ought to be doing. And he might turn around and go, no, F you, I'm the general, we're not doing that. But, but that's, what he, that's kind of the attitude he, he enjoyed. Uh, I could tell you another story about him when we won long rifle back in the F4. Uh, and in the bar, the same kind of thing happened. He came up and made some smart-ass remark about strike eagles dropping bombs. And Iron Man uh, was in that in that group of us at the bar, and just turned around, went nose to nose with him. And Horner just loved it. I mean, it's like it's like he was one of the brothers again, you know. And so I'm I'm having this little repartee with Horner about you know this is stupid, uh, you know, the three thirty six in particular. As we were winding down in the, in the F four. We we're doing 70 some percent air to air flying four V sixes against F 18s and all kinds of stuff out over the water. And now you're telling me I can't even go do intercepts. Uh, and so Horner about, I mean, not Horner, but Bolt about busted a, uh, uh, you know, three nerves in his brain uh, over this conversation. Uh, and, and when Horner basically looked and goes, yeah, I hear you, but you lose an airplane doing air to air and you're all done. Okay, then what's the what's the response? What can we do? And some of you remember uh, the response to that was we could do intercepts to the to 180 turn at the engagement. Yeah, and that was it. ROE at high altitude. That was that was it. That that was our training until we went to Desert Storm, and that's what caused some of the problems at Desert Storm. And, and now. Before we get over to into Saudi, I'll t- tell you a few more things about weapons employment and stuff. You know, I, I tied myself into the test guys at Eglin as soon as we got back and went, guys, I got to have clearances for high drags and, and, and LGBs and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm working with those guys down there and they're running simulations and doing all the stuff that they have to do to figure out whether it'll fall off the airplane correctly and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but but like I said, we're basically limited to Mark 82 slicks when we when we were when the order came down that Saddam had gone and done his thing and we're still getting ready to load airplanes up to leave. That was about all we were qualified to fly. Uh, and so I zapped off a message to the guys at Eglin and said, I need clearance for this, 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 and this. And oh, by the way, we're leaving in 12 hours to go to Saudi. So get me what you can get me. Uh, oh man, correct. What's that? Went to Oman first, yeah. and then Saudi. Yeah. yeah, and so the configuration we took off out of Seymour to head to the desert. Uh, you know, three bags, uh, travel pods, AIM nines, AIM seven stashed all over the place. None of that Only was two. none of that was legal. Uh, mm-hmm. We took we took off with a illegal configuration to head to the head to Saudi with just a signed piece of paper from Eglin saying, we think it'll fly. Let us know how it comes out. (laughs) And it worked us fine, but we would have shot off our travel pods if we would have had to engage anybody on the way over there, which was crazy. Yeah. And Yogi, how was the weather that day when you took off? It sucked. (laughs) (laughs) They put the KC-10s on on the uh, west end of the field and us on the east end of the field. Rusty led the first six ship. I think I had the second six ship. Uh, and the tanker took off, oh, you know, as the guys were in the army area, then they'd pull out on the runway and line up six airplanes and take off the opposite direction. So you could go out and kind of do one of these things to, to rejoin. 
they we got uh I, th I think it was Hornberg that was in his truck down there and, and I'm talking to him on the radio in his truck and he goes, we're going to call it 200 and a half. So you all can take <laughs> off. And I look out and go, there's no way this is 200 and a half. Um, and so, you know, we all took off with some plan to go land at Langley if we had to come back or, or whatever. And the weird part was, you know, we sent a, uh, Eagle guy in an F4 out into the Echo Moa. And the report back from him was, oh, it's clear above 22,000 feet. And so we take off thinking, oh, no big deal. Radar trail, we'll get, get chase the yeah. tanker up toward Langley and get out of here. <laughs> and we're at 34,000 feet still in, in this the weather. Thing. You can't see anybody outside of 4,000 feet away from us going, okay, where were these guys in Echo Moa talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> But anyway, real quick story on that. I my six ship ends up taking off, and uh, uh, Samwick and Kriegbaum are number two, and we turn the corner there and start heading up toward Langley, and we're climbing through about twenty three thousand feet. And Samwick keys the back radio and goes, hey, uh, "One, this is two. Yeah, what's going on? Uh, we just had a compressor stall, but uh, but we got the engine running again, so we're good to go." <laughs> Excuse me, you you did what? Goes, yeah, the engine's running good now, so it, we're we're good. I said, did the engine flame out? Yeah, you're cleared to the holding fix to go land back at Seymour Johnson. <laughs> Boy, they were both pissed. But I'm going, you know, you're starting out on a 14, 16 hour mission here with an engine that's already failed once. Uh, we're probably we're not doing that here. So that was, that was a pretty funny story. And Polo and I are laughing after we cleared them off and sent them on their way. It's like, what are these guys thinking? <laughs> thinking they're not going to miss it. But there's probably some other stuff. Reno, you, you probably remember what, talk, talk about what guys had oh. packed in their bags well, to go to Saudi. <laughs> it was funny because of the standpipes. I mean, they had the uh, three yeah. bags. And as soon as you got onto the tanker, um, and uh, you got topped off, pressurized those tanks, and you know that's how Rusty Bolt ended up at Langley, and you know got a ride back to Seymour uh, to be able to deploy, and and in the leadership thing too, J.O. McFalls hired um, Rusty, and J.O. McFalls was like everybody else; he was a great dancer, but uh, um, at the club, but not so much into. Uh, going to war it's um, fun, on, fun on the golf but, course uh, <laughs> that too the um on our uh i was with uh, dick hoey uh on the way over there and the uh we had the same problem but instead of diverting we just uh depressurized the tanks until we brought down the uh, level of fuel internally pressurized it vented a bunch of you know all across the ocean to get there but uh i mean we pressed forward and everything was working it's just those stupid standpipes were uh terrible you know i i ended up in sigonella because of the same thing um is about the fifth refueling the, the tankers have been refueling each other and i guess they do that with four pumps when they when they refuel with us you're oh. supposed to back off to two pumps mm -hmm. so i get on that fifth refueling whatever just yeah. north of libya <laughs> <laughs> and the left left standpipe blows and i'd look out there and go holy crap there's more gas going out so the guy puts eighteen thousand pounds of fuel into my airplane and my gas gauge registers two thousand pounds of it 
Going, okay, we <laughs> oh got a problem God. here. Yeah. So we ended up. I, I let everybody else cycle on and and get get their stuff done. And I I'm talking to the tanker guys while we're doing that. And one of them was going back to Siganella and said, "I'm just going to follow you. If I have to, you can drag me in." Uh, we never could get, I mean, depressurizing tanks and all that stuff, we never could get it to stop until oh. the internal fuel got down to about 10,000 pounds. And then, and then it just stopped coming out the wing. Uh, so we, we land there and, uh, Krogan and, uh, killer Poulet are sitting on the ramp. They've been there for about 30 minutes trying to get someone from the Navy to come over and de-arm the, the missiles <laughs> on the airplane so they can shut yeah. down. And I pull up beside him in this dark ramp, no lights on it any, anywhere. Uh, and I'm talking to him on, on Squadron Common. And, and I see Killer's in the back seat. And I go, Killer, y'all shut down your left engine. Killer, you get down and disarm all the missiles on both of our airplanes so we can get these airplanes <laughs> shut down. So he climbs, climbs down the jet and goes and disarms all the missiles on both airplanes so we can shut them down. Uh, but there is a little bit, a little bit funny stuff too. Back before we left, I, we should back, rewind just a little bit. But you know, we get this notice two days after Saddam takes Kuwait uh, that we may be going. And of course, we're all sitting around going, "No possible way! We, the airplane's not qualified to drop anything. None of us are MR. Yada yada yada." And so the next day, you have a squadron meeting and. Bolt comes in and goes, okay, everybody be serious. We, we, we might be doing this and everybody needs to think about this and whatever. And the next day he has a meeting and goes, okay, everybody go home and pack your bags. We're in 24 hour notice to, to deploy. And, and guys come back in that third day with their B4 bags with, you know, a, a bathing suit and two towels. <laughs> And the thought in their mind was, we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. We're going to take off, fly around the flagpole, come back here and land. And so there are half a dozen to a dozen guys that got to, to Saudi over there with three pair of underwear and, 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 and one flight suit. <laughs> Dude, I guess the, the first A-10 or the first KC-10 better be full of B-4 bags or something. <laughs> that was um, funny. <clears throat> So that's that's pretty funny, and I, you know, uh, I ended up spending a couple of days at Siganella, uh, and you know, Steep, who became the squadron commander later, who was the wing weapons officer, he and somebody else were in uh, um, what's the island out there just off of Spain? Azores. Oh, um, the Azores. The Azores. Yeah. Oh. There are two of there are two of them there. There's one in uh, Spain and two of us at Siganella. Uh, I, I mean, another funny story is I, I go to base ops at Siganella, and of course I can't tell them where I'm going. I'm trying to file a, a what it was an 1801 the international flight plan thing. Yeah, trying to file a flight plan on an international forum I I've probably never seen until that day or whatever. And going, okay, we got to go do this, 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 this. And the guy goes, "What's your destination?" Classified. <laughs> Well, you got to put something on here. I said, okay, put uh, Siganella 180 for 50 as the destination. <laughs> and we took off and we're heading down that way. And of course, the controllers are all, and we've, we've got the tanker on radio and, and, you know, he's already got three chicks in tow and we're just doing a rejoin to them. And the, the controller guy's going, okay, I got to have something for your destination or whatever. Let's go, okay, Chevy 2-1, go to Squadron Common. 
we just left the freak and left the, the, the Italian controller trying to figure out where we went or whatever. And <laughs> tanker guys to take care of this, you know, that's their, that's their business, not mine. So, um, but it's kind of funny, you know, when, when this, when our, when our standpipe blew, it's probably two in the morning or something like that. We're just North of, uh, like I said, Libya to Cairo in that area. And we actually thought about going into Cairo West and, and I mean, Polo had mentioned, you know, Cairo West is just over there a ways, whatever. I'm at. I'm not going into Cairo West with live, live munitions and stuff on this airplane. That's just not happening. Uh, so we ended up turning around, like I said, going, going back probably a couple hundred miles, 150 miles, whatever, back to Siganella, whatever it happened to be. And the thing was, uh, <laughs> the funniest thing was when the tankers are commun communicating between themselves, in the Mediterranean, it was due regard airspace. What the heck is that? I mean, it took me forever to figure that out. Due regard. They're not talking to anybody. They're just until they get to where they want to go. And then they start talking to somebody and get picked up. So the departure doesn't really mean anything. Uh, yeah. Um, so it, it was actually crazy. Due regard airspace. Yeah. So we end up, uh, where, did, where did you end up, Reno? Did you get all the way to Saudi? Of course. Mm -hmm. And then, and and then, we, uh, an then two hour hours and later, on you're on your way to Thumbrate? Yep, exactly. And uh, they didn't even top off the uh, the fighters, the airplanes. They just put enough gas for you to get the Thumbrate. And uh, we took off, uh, climbed. <laughs> went Did you have any freaks or coordinates or any of that kind of stuff when you took we off had we had yeah, the uh the flight order was on a, a small piece of paper and were coordinates and it was signed by the uh general on the ground there and the, this the is Saudi -star. this was the order yeah and when we, we showed up two and, days later we pull in we go into the the f-15 squadron for a minute and, and the two-star general meets us at the door and goes get those airplanes off my air patch uh okay where are we heading uh and so we did the same thing got a set of coordinates but no freaks or anything so mm -hmm. one of the one of the american guys comes out and goes hey here's a set of freaks we think one of them works you know whatever for thumb rate <laughs> mm -hmm. and so we're we're landing down there in the dark uh for us anyway i don't, I don't remember if y'all were down there daytime or no, night it was in the middle of the afternoon after you know I forget how many hours it was to Saudi Arabia and then an hour and a half on the ground and we launched again and went to uh, Thumbright. Yeah. So I, I mean, I knew some of you had flown 14 and a half, 15 hours and then an hour and a half later, you're up for another hour and 45 yep. or two to get down to Thumbright. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But we're a hundred miles out, just cycling through freaks seeing if anybody will answer a radio and I'm briefing the five guys I'm, I'm leading this five ship. I'm briefing the five guys. If we have to, we're going to land off the lantern pods, the, the nav pods. So you know, this, this, this necklace, a um, couple things come to mind listening to this. And of course, none of it is news to me. I knew that, I, you know, though I, I wasn't there yet. I was still out at Luke. Uh, actually, no, I, I had just gotten to Seymour. And there's a funny story there. But two things that come to mind, Yogi, as you talk about that. First of all, everybody hears about the fog of war. Well, it starts, the fog starts well before the war. And, uh, uh, and, and another thing that is, that is pretty routine for those of us gathered here that is not routine in the civilian world 
And the issue is, so what do we do now? Okay, and uh, I've been unable to recreate that. Uh, we have to, we have to execute something. I mean, it's like in the, in the fighters, when somebody says stand by, well, you, you can't really stand by. I'm going 400 knots here and, <laughs> and I'm running out of fuel. There is really no stand by. Um, I, I got to figure out something. And it's just like when Yogi was saying, Hey, how about Cairo West? Well, our training says, you know, go to, go to the nearest suitable field. Well, define suitable now. <laughs> and uh, obviously that wasn't suitable for the yokester. And uh, so everybody was just kind of executing a plan B or C or D. And that we became accustomed to that. And uh, it's really hard to find mm. elsewhere where the sense of urgency is what it is and and we gotta we gotta figure out something now and it may not be the best plan but it's a plan and we're gonna execute mm -hmm. it violently the yeah plan, and, plan and sometimes there's a, the next five minutes yeah sometimes there's a fine line between you make that decision and you're a hero or you're uh the next the entry in the doofer book you know <laughs> yeah yeah well that's only if the doofer book's allowed in your squadron yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's another Rusty Bolt joke. So yeah. <laughs> nowadays, I don't think anybody knows what a duper book is. But well, you, know. you remember when when we got to Saudi, and um, you know that is is that that was kind of the highlights of getting into thumb rate. I think, of course, we got there, and uh, I guess for the first two days, y'all were looking for a place to sleep besides underneath your airplane and and meals to eat which there are some two million mres in a in a quonsa hut thing that i guess you found yeah. on day day two or something uh but i got there and mikey duvall comes out to me and and steep turner and i are both standing there together uh and mikey comes out just all frantic and goes nothing's being done there's not anything going on there's not any airplanes on alert not, nothing's happening what do you what have you been doing for 48 hours <laughs> I mean, in Yemen's 50 miles over there. And, and, you know, when we got there, the 20 airplanes are all parked in one little ramp all right next to each other. I'm going to take one 500-pounder to take out all 20 airplanes here. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so I go in and, and make a comment to Bolt about, hey, we need to figure out what's going on. He goes, I'm trying to. And he's got a phone in his hand. He's trying to call through the, the phone switching network uh, to figure out, to get to Riyadh to, to figure out what kind of tasking they want us to do, that phone switch goes through Kuwait City back to Riyadh. <laughs> uh, dude, this isn't secure. Why, we, I brought a secure sat radio with us. Where is it? And so, so I go into the, that little block that we set, sectioned off for Intel back there, you know, that, that Polo and I were doing all, of, all the planning for the first three nights. And... Um, I can't remember that sergeant's name, funniest guy, skinny, skinny little dude that was uh Z-Man. Z-Man, yeah. yeah. And he's back there. And I said, Z-Man, where's the radio? He goes, it's set up right there. Nobody's come in to try <laughs> to use it. Uh, and so I told Bolt, I said, go back and use that thing and, and figure out. He's got the keys and all that stuff to figure out who you can talk to and how you can talk to him and stuff. And let's not go through the phone lines anymore. 
Uh, and so I, I grabbed a set of keys to the Humvee and told Steve, hey, come with me. And so we took off and drove around the airfield trying to find the weapons guys. And I get out there and Sergeant Brown uh, is the, the chief out there and goes, guys are playing cards, poker and stuff because no one's told them anything to do. Nothing's going on. And so I said, what do you, what do you got out here? And this is obvious abbreviated story. What, what's on base? What, what can we load on the airplanes? He goes, well, there's a couple thousand Mark 82s, a couple thousand Mark 84s, uh, some rock eye. And he goes, I got these boxes of these lanyards that came in like two days before we deployed. And I just threw them on a pallet. I have no idea what they're for. And I look at them and they're the Kevlar lanyards, you know, and, and, and until then we've been using the steel cables that were beating the crap out of the CFTs and poking holes in them and all that kind of stuff. I said, those things are supposed to be the lanyards for anything you hook on the CFTs on this airplane. And so that started a little bit of research to figure out how to make all that stuff work. Uh, but bottom line was we walked around a little bit and saw what he had. And I said, make me 400 Mark 82s, 200 Mark 84s and 200 Rock I up. And before we got in the Humvee and got left to go back over to the squadron side, bombs were coming off the rack loaded up you know onto their stuff ready to go to get loaded on airplanes and so i go back over and talk to to rusty and i you know there's another weird story here and i'm not exactly sure all the details somehow uh hopewell was our ops officer when we got ready to deploy and he just managed to not put himself in an airplane or on a kc-10 to come to saudi with us <laughs> and I, i'm scratching my head going where's the ops officer <laughs> uh, and so I go to Bolt and go, and, and you know, uh, Gruber, uh, Mongo, Mon Gruber. Mongo. Yeah. He, he became the ops officer. I think if I'm, my memory serves me right, he became the ops officer because Hopewell didn't show up. And so I, you know, go in and talk to him and he's not, he's not in that position quite yet, but I'm going, you know, we got to get some stuff done. We need, we need to put probably at least four airplanes on alert with some guys on some five minute or 10 minute alert. You've got space up here in the building where we can put some cots up and some guys can stay here suited up, ready to go. But you know, the threat 50 miles across the border uh, and we need to spread these airplanes out and, and get some stuff done. So we hashed through that real quick. Uh, and so that, you know, and then I think as well, by the time I got there, like on day three, you all had found those uh, concrete places that we put, what was it, four guys in a room that had yep. mm -hmm. one bathroom and into the room or something. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So we'd found a place to stay. And, and of course, we lived off of MREs for, I want to say, as close to a month or maybe even more before well, we got I don't think it went that long. We launched at the Omani O Club. That's right, but Iron Man continued eating um, MREs and eating yeah. at the officers club. That was so funny. My it God. It's funny too, they, they wouldn't let us in the O club for dinner, but they'd let us come in for lunch. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, oh, and the other thing, they um, the airplanes were not um, combat capable. They had, didn't have uh, the uh, jamming, internal jamming pods and yeah. the contractor deploys to thumb rate and they're pulling one aside a day and taking it apart, installing the hardware. And it was crazy. I mean, we were definitely not ready. Yeah. This, yeah. I mean, it was, 
it was all pretty close to taking 24 737s to thumb rate as far as combat capability went and going, okay, now you all figure out what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the airplane wasn't qualified to do anything. Uh, and then of course we got into the, you know, the, the, the whole shit storm, I'll put it that way of low level flying and tactics and all that kind of stuff that happened over there. And I mean, I was a proponent that we should all be trained at hundred feet, but I, but as a weapons officer, I went, it's gotta be done the right way. Mm-hmm. I've got the plan. I've got the program. Here's how it all, all plays out. So we've got to get this going or guys are going to go do what they think they have to do on their own. And both, I mean, just finger <laughs> in my chest. No, we're not doing that. Nobody goes below 500 feet, yada, yada, yada. And so what happened? And and multiple, multiple flight leads out there going out and, and training themselves in a hundred foot flying in, in thumb wow. rate with no, no academics, no supervision, no, no training plan, just go out and do it. And of course, as the weapons officer, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that goes, don't tell me what you're doing. If, if you're doing something outside of what we've been approved to do, because I'm the one that's going to take all the crap for it. If, if it comes down. Uh, and so it was an interesting time through there. And that, that started some of this, this, the do for book thing, you know, we had the <laughs> stray balls and some of those guys that came over from the chiefs to fill up, uh, the Manning, I think, you know, we took 24 jets and we only had uh, 26 crews. And I think we needed 30 or 32, if I remember right, for the Manning to work correctly. So we ended up with whatever it was, five or six pilots and five or six uh, Wizzos from the Chiefs that deployed over there. And, and I'd known Stray Balls for a long time. Good guy, great, great friend. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, he, he put up put up with the stuff from Bolt for about two weeks and comes in one day, he's got his head all shaved off and, and gets in the doofer boat and goes, I, I'm, a, I'm a prisoner of the rockets. <laughs> and, then, so, I mean, and, that, and that was one of the most tame, tame entries into the doofer book. Uh, and, of course, m- my belief the whole, whole time I flew was the doofer book is, is sacred ground. You know, no nobody above the rank of major touches the doofer book as far as editing or any of that kind of stuff. And I walk in one day and the doofer book's gone. It's well, not on the, the articles are all about rusty. What the <laughs> hell's going on? Gaming articles about you know uh, uh, rusty. No wonder he took it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I went to Mongo and went, "Hey, this this is screwed up, man. That thing's got to come back, or you're going to see morale go through the tank." Uh, and he goes. Rust, Rusty took it. I think it's over in his quarters, um, which another another small small lesson on how not to lead your people. Uh, you know, we we got four of us to a room with a bathroom and a shower, and I don't expect him to be in a room like that with four of the people. But but I go to over to his place one day to talk to him about the tasking and the stuff that we're working on that Paul and I are working on in the middle of the night. Uh, and I open, open the door to his place and it's like a two bedroom suite and there's five bottles of scotch on the counter. And, you know, at this point in time, we're, we can't even have a beer. Uh, I'm going, dude, what the hell? This guy's, this guy's got scotch coming over on KC 10 straight from Seymour Johnson direct to him. And all of his buds can't even, we can't even figure out a way to get a beer to him. Uh, so that was another, another lesson and don't ever do stuff that you wouldn't ask your own guys to do 
uh, it's funny, you know, leadership, I'm sure all of you learned the same thing. You put things in this part of your brain and you go, I like that. And I'm going to remember that when I get to be a commander and this side's full of all that. I'll never do that crap when I become a commander. Uh, this side you know, got a whole lot more full from Rusty than this. <laughs> you, you know, Yogi, talking about the uh, the chiefs that deployed with you, um, but th that's a good segue for uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, okay, uh, I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, I showed up on the day that Saddam invaded Kuwait. And so I'm... Uh, I show up at the squadron as the new guy. I had never been to Seymour in my life. So I got directions to the squadron, went to the squadron. And of course, everybody's jumping through their ass there. And I, I show up and say, hey, necklace here to save the freaking world. Didn't know anything about the invasion. Didn't know that all the crews had been sent home to pack a bag, uh, just like Yogi was saying. Anyway, I go in there and they go, I couldn't hardly get anybody's attention and I'm there to save the world, you know? Uh, and, uh, and so they basically said, dude, do you have a phone number that we can reach you at? Go away and we'll call you. Don't call us. We're busy right now. Well, so I went home. I found a place to stay. I was over at, uh, you know, housing office and put my name on the friggin' list to get a, you know, I'm, renting a house, an apartment downtown for till I can get on base, blah, blah, blah. And about a week later, my phone rings and says, hey, dude, you can come in now and uh, we'll get you in process and get your training started. So in processing all went fine, except when it came time to uh, start my training, <laughs> there was nobody home. Yeah, we had nobody. And, you know, Yogi was talking about getting all the IPs certified. Well, we you need IPs to train people. Yeah. So now we show up, the, my class, uh, probably what, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us showed up. And, again, everybody who was qualified was gone, okay, because they took every all hands on deck. Anybody that was MR or an instructor was going and gone by the time. Now, they were still there when I got there but they were home packing, whatever, getting ready to leave. And everybody at the squadron was, you know, assholes and elbows trying to figure out what are we doing next? And are we going, are we not going? And, you know, like Yogi said, a lot of guys didn't believe it. They said, we're not going anywhere. You know, anyway, it was, it was pretty much chaos at the squadron. And uh, so I went away as instructed and came back and there was, I think two IPs to train 12 crews anyway. So that was kind of a tough time there. Uh, and again, it was a rainbow crew cruise that, that were already deployed. They took all the chiefs that were qualified, which was a dozen maybe. Um, and the rest were all the rockets. And if there were any rockets that weren't, they were part of our class too, our M2 class. Anyway, so there was kind of an abbreviated upgrade there. And from the start of my MQ program, uh, Mission Qual at Seymour, uh, till the end, they would, well, as soon as somebody would get qualified, they'd send them over and send back an IP so that they could, so the capacity uh, to train. 
was greater. And some of the guys in my RTU class were former Rockets that were going to the Rockets. And of course, they checked those guys out first. And any F4 instructors, they made, they blessed them as when they became MR, they were like automatically strike eagle instructors. Clute was one of those guys. But the guys <laughs> that were from Seymour, they were known quantity. So they said, you know, we know what this guy could do. We just got to get him certified on paper and get him out of here. So the M the mission qual class got pared down a little bit as time went on. And the instructor cadre got beefed up a little bit as time goes on. This is uh, Desert Shield time. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so the Rocketeers finally get their stuff together and they're training at thumb rate. And we're trying to hustle people through an MQ program. And there again, it's just like Yogi mentioned, we, we didn't know, are the Chiefs going or not going? I mean, we're not IOC yet. So it's, it, it's like, we don't even, we're preparing to go, but we don't, we haven't got the word yet. Necklace, uh, we, we got weren't the IOC either. What's that? <laughs> uh, the three the Rocketeers weren't IOC either. We got well, left, I think, uh, well, once see, we got deployed there. Well, see, that's what we were thinking. We were going under normal circumstances. That's a prerequisite, but it wasn't yeah, for right. the Rockets. So why yeah. would it be for the Chiefs? Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, just to let you guys know, that may be news to you, what was going on back at the ranch, uh, because you guys were had your hands full over there trying to figure out a place to eat. <laughs> we, I, I had a feeling that was going on because we had Stansbury and stray balls and, and I'm going, everybody you're sending over is an IP. What are you doing to get your guys qualified at home? I mean, you go yeah. Steve, Steve Pinkle and, and Bubba Ray at, at the wing. We're about the only two IPs left in the building for a while. Yeah. The chairman building. was one of them. Yeah. Chairman. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he actually came over for a while to Saudi to thumb rate, didn't he? Yeah, he was one of the guys that they one of the first guys yeah, they sent back. Yeah, to, yeah. To so help, I mean, I'm looking at the guys you're sending, up. going. They're almost all instructors, which was good for us. But I'm going. <laughs> I don't know how you're operating at home, you know. And, yeah, and nobody and was I, looking I at that. Too, you had you had some of our young guys in there, you know, Steve Quast and some of those guys who were, who were trying to get checked out to come join our squadron. Going, how are you going to get them checked out if you don't have any IPs at home? Hey, uh, Smy, tell them about your check ride downrange. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me tell you a couple things. That that whole week of uh, the week Saddam invaded, I'll tell you what I was doing real quick. I left Seymour to do a ditty move in my pickup truck to Luke the day Saddam invaded. <laughs> and so I'm I'm like listening to the radio and hear that Saddam's invaded Kuwait. I stop at my parents' house in Missouri to spend the night on the way to Luke. And so I called back home to my flight commander, who was Shelly Winters, you know, a legend in the F-4. And uh, I said, Shelly, you know, if we're going to go to war, I'm still MR in the F-4. And so, you know, I'll give up my F-15 spot to, you know, to go to war. And he's like, nah, if the F-4 is not going, they've already said the F-4 is not going. You know, you're stuck between airplanes. You've been wanting an F-15, just go to Luke and tough shit, you missed the war. You know, and I was like, whatever, you know. So anyway, so I go to Luke and little do I know the war's going to drag on from the August invasion until the January start of the war. So I, I graduate in December and uh, in November, I call back to Seymour and talk to uh, talk to the OG and said, hey, you know, you need you're going to need a couple more dudes from my class. I need to you know, I need to get in the war. 
And he said, okay, I'll put you on the list. And so then like the very next day, my flight commander at Luke comes to me and says, uh, Hey, you know, you're going, you're going straight to the war. Just wanted to let you know, just, you know, as soon as you graduate, get on home. And so I stopped again, I stopped through Missouri on my way home just for one night, you know, and see my parents go to Seymour and deploy out Christmas Eve, you know? And so, and, and so I'm neither a chief or a rocket at that time. You know, I came from the Eagles and I showed up in the chiefs uh, one day and, and it was about the same level of chaos that Nicholas was describing. And they go, you know, stick that dude on a tanker and send him out of here. You know, I, I wasn't going to fly a jet over there. You know, I wouldn't, you know, if anybody has an A team and a B team, it was the chiefs, you know, and I was just like, <laughs> I was like C team, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, so I flew a tanker over to, uh, uh, over to Alcarge and I land and it's me and a bunch of enlisted guys and they roll us out into formation and some sergeant starts yelling at us. And, and, uh, I see this truck going down the flight line with an arm hanging out the window as he's driving and there's a chief's patch on his shoulder. And I'm thinking, you know, that dude can pick me up and get me out of here. <laughs> and that was docking Gary. And, uh, he, he drove by and sort of, you know, gave me the signal and I went, yep. And I grabbed my H3 bag and stepped out of formation and threw it in his bag. And he goes, come on, man, I'll, I'll go get you checked in and get you a tent, all that stuff. And so, uh, so we go get checked in and they go, here's where your tent belongs. Start putting it up now. You know? And I was like, Oh boy, this ought to be fun. You know? And, and you know, those tents are pretty good size for one guy to wrangle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so that was how I got there. And then, um, you know, so you I showed up at Al Cars. I, I showed up at Al Cars yeah. uh, Christmas Eve, and then uh, uh, since then I was one of the new guys. I got designated to work at the TACC part time as the fighter duty officer and to fly part time. Yeah. And so uh, night one of the war, I was at the TACC. You know, with down there three stories underground with Chuck Horner and General Corder and uh, Buster Glosson and all those guys. And then uh, my first night of the war, I fly with Abby Reese and. Uh, First night of my war, not Abby's, you know. But, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, and I'm sure Abby said, Hey, you know, I'm sure the Rockets went like, Hey, who's this guy? You know, new guy Who, who's going to fly with him. And Abby probably said, I flew with him in F4s, I'll fly with him, you know, something like that. So, anyway, so I was relieved to look at the schedule and know that I was flying with Abby because I'd flown with Abby, you know, a lot in the F4. And I knew he, you know, was a good dude and was a strong pilot and wasn't going to be a screamer or something like that, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, so, we go fly our sortie and uh, we're coming back in the squadron and Steve Turner is standing there out front of the squadron tent. And he said, well, Smite, did you survive? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, then you're MR. <laughs> so, that, was, that was my checkout. That's so, awesome. I had, uh, I graduated from Luke with about 42 and a half or 43 hours in the F-15. I got one practice ride in Saudi Arabia and my 45th hour in the jet was combat. <laughs> awesome. And so, you know, and and like you said, all we all we dropped is Mark 82s and and uh, and BDU 33s. And so my first night in combat, I'm dropping rock eye, you know, and I'm trying to set up the packs, you know, and I'm going, you know, whew, it's been a long time since I, you know, passed that test in the academic squadron. And so uh so we're going north and I set up the packs, you know, and I and I get a designation and I go, hey Abby, you know, we're in Saudi Arabia still going to the tanker, and I go. You know, there's nothing out there but desert. You know, throw the master arm on and see if we get a ready light because I'm not sure I got this pack set up right. <laughs> so he, th he throws on the master arm, no ready light. Okay, turn the master arm off. 
you know, redo the packs. Okay, throw the master arm on. Shit, huh? We got a green light. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'd never even drop rock eye off the F4 before, and I'm dropping it oh, yeah. off the F15. You know, it was just that kind of stuff every night, you know, a new adventure of, uh, you know, what's going on today. Yeah, I flew 42 combat missions, 41 of them with Polo, but I went out one night with a with somebody else. I think it was, uh, I can't remember now who it was in the back seat, but it was, it was to check him out on LGBs. Yeah. I mean, in the middle of combat, we're, we're first time ever taking guys out and, and checking them out on a targeting pod and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's, it was not. Well, we didn't get the, when, when did we get the targeting pods? I mean, and there was only, you know, a handful of them during the entire desert storm. Well, the, yeah. the best we ever did was on the flight leads. Had Flight leads had target pods. Wingman didn't. Right. Well, you know, one, one, and I. one, one yeah. of the <laughs> things that was a, a bone of contention over there at Alcars is that when we got the five or six targeting pods, uh, we scrounged them from Eglin and Nellis and wherever they were in the world. They shipped them downrange and hooked them on the airplanes. And most of them went to the Chiefs, which pissed the rockets off. Anyway, <laughs> I I happened to be one of them. And it wasn't because of me and my 70 hours of, of fighter expertise. <laughs> but I, I had T-Bull in my back seat. So that was my seeing eye wizzo. And uh, who was a patch wearer in the F4. And ironically enough, he was my flight commander at Homestead mm. when, he, when he was a captain. And now he's yeah. a lieutenant colonel. He was up at the TACC, I think, for a while with uh, with Smy. But he got the long straw to come down and fly full time. And, uh, you know, I had uh, 50 missions. And I think at least 40 of them were with T-Ball. And that's so he could keep an eye on me, I'm sure. But <laughs> a funny story about the first LGB drops, okay? So we got in the mission planning room, and and uh, T-Bull was uh, LGB expert. Uh, and anyway, and chairman, and radar, and myself and T-Bull. That was the two ship, and we both had pods. And we're going to go try to figure out how to, how to operate these. So we went to... Uh, a benign, you know, target uh, that really didn't have any combat significance, but it was on the bad guy side. And uh, so anyway, there was a bunch of towers that we were going to try to bring down, comms towers. And uh, we come in there, and this is where we learned about uh, laser code deconfliction. All right, because... Uh, <laughs> You know, we're flying in there in trail, and uh, Chairman and Radar have this tower. Uh, me and T-Bull have this other tower, and three and four have different towers. And so we're, we're just supposed to knock these towers down one at a time, just step through them. Anyway, we go in, and uh, Chairman and Radar go, okay, one's bombs away. And uh, I'm sitting there trying to fly formation and whatever, and, and T-Bull's doing his whizzo thing back there, and, and he goes, uh, Pickle and hold. So I pickle and hold, the bomb comes off, and uh, I scroll over to the to the target IR page, and, and <laughs> I'm looking at our tower, and it goes boom, and, I, and the tower's coming down, and I said, shit hot, 
and and Tebow goes, stand by, that's not our bomb. <laughs> and about that time, Radar comes up and says, one's no spot. <laughs> and, then, and then my bomb goes into a smoking hole where the tower <laughs> used to be. And so my first LGB drop, I was two for one. Uh, you know, so I, I was I was two hundred percent on my bomb sheet. There you so go. That that's kind of a that's kind of a unique story. Hey, I want to back up just a little bit to some of the planning, if you guys don't mind. Uh, it's a great a great testament to how Desert Storm was done uh, when we got over there and. Uh, well, a couple things happened. Some of you know I came back to the States uh, over Thanksgiving to, with the plan to get the people out of the Kuwait City Embassy. And, of course, Colonel Hornberg had called Colonel Ray and said, hey, Yogi's coming back home. Uh, get with Pingle and whatever or whatever he needs, you all make it happen. So I we'd put this plan together with 12 Strike Eagles, three 117s, and about 46 helicopters to go take the people out of the Kuwait City Embassy. Uh, and so we went back to Seymour and, and practiced this at Fort Bragg. I mean, I had a truckload of, of uh, CB-87 brought in down in the, in the alert area down there. We did all of our stuff down there. And, and I go in to uh, Pingle and go, I, I need three crews this night, one crew this night, two crews this night, whatever. And, and they need to be quality guys. You know, one of them that, one of them that did it was Bennett. Uh, uh, and we said, these can't be the, these can't be the guys you have left over because we're going to go, <laughs> we were dropping CB 87, 60 seconds before helicopters were flying through this mess to go bang the door down in the Quake city embassy and get the people out. Uh, and there's some funny stories in there. I'm, I think we're probably running short of time. So yeah, I'll just, I'll just tell you it happened. And so on the way back, uh, we took two jets and went to Germany Spent a couple of days there flying against the borrowed SA-8 from the East Germans uh, to see how the raw gear would work yeah. uh, that right there at Courtyard south of Ramstein. Um, and so, shoot, I can't remember that guy's name either. Tall, skinny Lieutenant Colonel um, Heald. Is that, yeah. does that ring a Char bell? Charlie Heald. Charlie Heald. Charlie Heald. I think yeah. he was the one that came with me. And so we had briefed, hey, we're going to be out here. The weather was, you know, a thousand and four standard German weather. So we're going to stay out here until about 5,000 pounds when that happened. When you hit bingo, just I'll, I'll clear you off. You can go home, land individually, and whoever has the most gas can stay and do as many runs as we can. And so it kind of goes back to what Ned said about just making stuff happen. I send him off at, you know, 4,000 pounds or whatever, he goes back to Ramstein. I don't hear anything more from him. And I said, you know, holler at me when you land. Let me know what the weather's really like. And so I don't hear anything from him for a while. And after another 20 minutes, and I'm about time for me to go back, I go, hey, Char Charlie, what's the weather like? He goes, uh, it's below minimums, and I'm still in the pattern. <laughs> How much gas you got? 2,800 pounds. Okay, point your airplane toward Munich and start climbing. I'll join on you. We're, we're, we're getting out of here. And so I'm coordinating with Ryan to get us clearance out before he flames this thing out. Uh, and we're heading toward Ryan and I'm calling them going, Hey, what's the nearest base? Well, there was a base over there in the corner by France. There's a Canadian base. I can't remember the name of it. Colmar. What's that? Colmar. 
C-O-L-M-A-R. It might have been. Um, mm-hmm. But I said, is, is it available? He goes, yeah, it's available. But you're number 18 in the emergency pattern to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're not going there. And so we started heading down toward Munich. I'm going, just get as far out of this weather as you can. And I looked down and we're, uh, was the A-10 base down there in the middle of Germany? Uh, Something Heim or something. But I looked down as we're we're flying over and go, I can see the runway. We're landing there. And of course, by this time, Charlie's got 2,200 pounds or something like that. And I'm, I probably got 4,000. So we start looping down to go land and, and, uh, I clear him off in front of me and said, Hey, this thing's only 7,500 feet. So get on the brakes as soon as you can and get your butt off the runway as soon as you can. Cause I'm going to be right behind you. Um, and so we end up landing and, and getting to take care of that. Well, we end up deploying into Saudi Christmas Eve, which I think smile, you said that was the same, same night you got there. Right. Uh, oh, same so- night I left Seymour. Okay, well, we, we actually end up landing back at our cars on Christmas Eve with yeah. 28 pizzas in the travel pods and on the stand, stand between the two cockpits. They wouldn't <laughs> all fit in the travel pod. And so I call Eberly as we land and go, hey, meet me in my airplane with your truck. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a present. Uh, and so he gets there and we start unloading these 28 pizzas that uh, Bones and I had bought in, at that pizza place at the end of Ramstein. And so, you know, Christmas Eve, we actually had a pizza party and then walked around singing Christmas carols through Tent City with Steep leading the way. Um, but the other part of this too, I wanted to get back to was uh, the planning for this. You know, we're over there and, and thumb rate and I get a phone call from Buster Glosson's office. Hey, you need to come up here. Uh, we're going to start the planning for uh offensive ops and of course the Saudis had no idea we were planning offensive ops for probably four months you know we were supposed to all be there defensive protecting the kingdom all that kind of stuff uh, and I kind of went what's what's ninth air force doing well you know the standard story if you can't make it in the squadron you go to the wing if you can't make it in the wing you go to number <laughs> air force so uh, Sam Baptiste was the the guy in charge of uh, weapons, I think it was, or plans at, at Ninth Air Force. He was a great guy, but he had all these guys, and there's a couple of strike eagle guys from Seymour that we'd kind of washed up and out of the way that ended up at, num- at num- numbered Air Force. Going, I got nobody here that can plan any, plan anything like offensive ops for the scale we're talking about. And so I went and talked to him, made sure that he kind of knew what was going on without uh, without opening his mouth too much to the Saudis and whatever. But we went into this room and it's Buster Glosson and uh, Bullard Eskridge, his exec. And there's probably nine of us in the room. There's a Lieutenant Colonel from the first wing. Uh, the rest of us are all captains and majors. Uh, and you you probably heard the story about um, Colonel, what's his name that developed the five ring theory at, at checkmate that brought, you know, they brought that plan over and, uh, is it Walden? Um, and, and briefed it to Horner and Horner threw it across the room and said, get the hell out of here. I got my own, my own people to do this kind of stuff. Um, well, one of the guys that was there, Lieutenant Colonel at the time, he didn't do, I think he retired as a three-star. Uh, can't think of his name right now, but he scooped all this stuff up and he comes in and, and uh, Glosson goes, He's going to give you about a 45 minute brief on what this plan from, from uh, checkmate looked like. 
And when you're done with that, if you need a general to make something happen, come get me. And Buster walks out of the room. And so the, the planning cell for the first three nights of Desert Storm is nine captains and majors, a lieutenant colonel, and about 12 intel people. And so they brief this plan, uh, and uh, we, we hear the whole thing. I'm going, yeah, that doesn't work real well for strike eagles, but like, like all that stuff we did out in western Iraq where we're scud hunting, driving up and down highways, we, we, we actually had an argument over that going, well, it's not something that's very productive for a strike eagle to do, but the F-111s with paved tack absolutely could not do it, you know, because that thing doesn't do what Lantern did on the strike eagle. Uh, and so, you know, we're sitting there developing tactics in our brain while we're talking about this stuff. Going, well, I can take a strike eagle and do S turns over the road and use the pod to just travel up the road looking for these things underneath bridges and stuff. And so that's how that's how that all got planned was a group of a group of young guys. And Horner was 100 percent behind that, you know, after his days in Vietnam, where targeting came from the Pentagon to squadron in Vietnam to go, hey, go blow this thing up regardless of what it is. Uh, Horner's theory was no, we're not doing that, uh, and so that it actually worked the way it's planned. And you know, there's a number of books written about how it was all done. Uh, but it's kind of nice to be in that room and and be one of those guys to, that got to see that and do the the horse trading with A10s and F16s and F11s to go. I can do that, but I can't do that. You can do this, but you can't do this. Uh, and so that's kind of how the first three nights of of planning came out. Uh, I, I'm the one that invited the chiefs over, Ned, because uh, <laughs> we, we got to this point and I, and I finally went to Gloss and went, we can't do this with 24 airplanes. Uh, I don't know what the status of the chief is. The, the chiefs are back at home, but they've got to bring 24 airplanes over uh, if we want to continue down this path that we're going down. Uh, and so that's what generated, spooled up all the 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 momentum to get the chiefs to, to deploy over there and i think you all came over right around christmas too if i'm not mistaken well i have to yogi i have to thank you for that because that uh has essentially changed my life i mean can you imagine having been in the strike eagle at that time and not been invited uh to the war everything since then would have been different well, you know, you know, too, there, there were some guys that came over, uh, some loop guys, Harry, Harry Day and uh, was one of them. a couple of those guys that came over with, hey, we're going to come over and help do whatever. Uh, and, you know, our, our squadron, it, I mean, it pissed me off, but our squadron went, you can ride in the back seat, And that's <laughs> it. And, and so, you know, I, I remember Harry, Harry Day and I, Harry Day gave me some of my prep rides to go to F4 weapon school. So we've been friends for a long, long time. Uh, and he, and I understood entirely because I didn't come over here to ride in the back seat for my one or two combat missions I'm gonna get to fly. And I don't know why our squadron did what they did. I, I, I wasn't in that decision-making loop, uh, but there are some weird stuff that, that took place there. And then some of those, so some of those guys didn't get their combat sortie or two because the squadrons wouldn't, wouldn't deal with them. Now, the one area that Steve Pingle and I went nose to nose on was when you guys came over, I briefed the plan for the first three days and went, uh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. We got this many sorties on these days, this many sorties on these days, yada, yada, yada. And that was actually 
our, our squadron guys hadn't known about that plan, but just a few weeks when you guys showed up and then I briefed the, the two squadron commanders and Colonel Hornberg were there. And I said, I'm just going to tell you, because at that point in time, the rockets, there are average time in the airplane was like 320 hours or something. And I went, you know, the chiefs, your average time in the airplane was 75 hours. And so I had said, I think the rocket should take these, these target packages because they're a little more difficult. And, and for, for three days, three days, do this, get your guys three combat sorties. After that, you can do whatever you want to. We split this any way you want to do it. I don't care. I just want to keep all 48 airplanes alive for three days. And Pingle went nuts. He and Taco Martinez, I mean, just, uh, it came, got to the point where Pingle goes, Captain, sit down and shut up. You don't make these decisions. Uh, and of course I went, okay, I've, I've, I've said my piece. This is the way, this is the way I think it should be done. Uh, and of course we, you know, we, we lost a couple of airplanes in that first couple of nights that, that raid on Basra where, uh, was that Teak and Donnie that ended up getting shot down or, or whatever that was happened. The second night. Yeah, uh, that, that was, was, that was one of the missions that I said, I think the rocket should do that. Uh, because I knew it was going to be, uh, a heavy, heavy emplacement of AAA and all the stuff that went along with it. I said, I, I think we got to trust experience more than that was, than, uh, that, that was my first combat sortie. Yeah. And, uh, that's when, that's when it, it really sunk in that this is for real. Yeah. No joke. Um, yeah, it's a T-bird flight. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't, I don't second guess anybody. And like I said, Steve Pingle and I still talk to each other. We're good friends. And, and I'm not saying anything to you guys that I haven't said to him. You know, and I, and I said it that night that, I mean, I, I stomped my foot a couple of times and went, no, this, this, this needs to be this way. Uh, and then finally Colonel, Colonel Hornberg, which he and I had become friends because all this planning stuff I'd done was top secret eyes only Colonel Hornberg. And there's these sleeves of information that I'd send down to thumb rate for us to do the planning, me and Polo and uh, Z-Man and whatever, uh, would come to Hornburg and he'd just, he'd drive up in his car and go, this has got to be yours because it's not something I need. <laughs> uh, and so I was briefing him probably every two weeks on what we were doing and how we were doing it. A lot of times briefing him and not briefing Rusty because <clears throat> Rusty didn't have a need to know at that point. Uh, and so we, we kept that stuff, you know, back within the Intel area of that building we were using. One of the safes inside there, Polo and I and Z-Man were the only three that knew the combo to it. And that's where all that stuff went. So when we'd go out and fly at thumb rate and get, get done at midnight or one in the morning, the three of us would go back in there, lock the doors, pull all that stuff out and plan till eight in the morning. And then we'd go crash and try to try to sleep from eight in the morning till five in the evening or whatever, you know, to, to make up sleep time. Uh, yeah, 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 let, me, let me ask just quickly. So can you talk about those, the, the, the target sets then for those first three nights? And can you talk, I mean, all of you, not, not just yoga, but, but obviously yoga, you can kick us off, but can you talk about tactics? So you just mentioned triple a, um, there's low level versus medium altitude. That obviously was a lesson learned the hard way, but can you describe the, um, uh, the sort of, development of the tactic and and, and what yeah, it is you're supposed to be striking 
Yeah, you know, uh, the, the thumb rate mentality, uh, you know, Pete Hook, rest his soul. Pete Hook and I, when we were still back at Seymour, just gotten the, the F-15 back, we developed that two and a half to four mile in-train formation to, to crowd guys up so we get more people in line. You know, the F-111 community had done whatever it was, six mile trail or that kind of stuff. I went, I can't take 22 airplanes or 24 airplanes against a target with all of them being seven miles in trail. That means that this, this train of airplanes is, is 150 miles long. And so Pete and I went out in, in West Virginia and developed this tactic with, of using the radar and the IFF and all that kind of stuff to keep track of each other. In that. And, the, and, and the nav flare. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you bet. Yeah, but, but we did that. All of it. We did that day. Pete was a flight commander and I was the, ops, uh, I was the weapons officer. And so we scheduled our, I, I went to Pete and we sat and talked about it and said, you need to, since you're a flight commander, you can do it. You need to go schedule you and me to fly together like once a week or twice a week until we can get this stuff ironed out. And so we did a few daytime sorties and went out and practiced all that stuff with each of us taking different turns and positions and whatever. And then we did it at night uh, and went out at night. And this was all, this was all being done without Rusty knowing anything about it. Cause we knew if, if, if we talked to him about it, he'd go, Oh no, you can't do that. That's too dangerous. So, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as a lot of the other guys doing stuff behind Rusty's back uh, for the sake of tactics. But, but that's, that was kind of the mentality of the formation that we used uh, once you got to thumb rate. And I think all the four ships were going out and, and running that formation at low level, thinking that the first, at least the first few nights of Desert Storm would be, would go in at low level. And of course that 22 ship, we tanked at 30,000 feet down to a couple thousand feet off the ground. Uh, and when I got off the tank, the last tanker there on that first mission on the first night, that tanker's wings are going like this and you're trying to hang on to that thing. And, and you know, just is a monster trying to, to stay attached to the tanker. Uh, so we ran in low altitude the first couple nights and, and knowing all this AAA was there and stuff, uh, hoping on surprise uh, for a lot of the first couple nights stuff that maybe we could get to the targets before they'd start shooting at us. And maybe then we could get out of the target area before anybody got hurt. Uh, and that, that worked out fairly true for a couple nights. Uh, and after the second night, uh, on the second, is either the second or third night I went in and the sea model guys were capping east, west at 35,000 feet, nothing to do. And uh, now mind you too, those first few nights we carried six rock eye and two aim sevens on some of the airplanes so we were carrying half a load of weapons um, in my estimation on a lot of the airplanes because we were carrying aim sevens on one side of the jet and so um, on after night two i went to to hornberg and said i think we ought to take all these aim sevens off put 12 canisters up or 12 bombs whatever we're carrying and 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 haul a couple of aim nines uh, nothing out there is flying anymore and the C models are sitting up there looking for stuff to do. So there's really no reason for us to be thinking about air to air very much anymore. So the same discussion we had on, on that same night after night two, I told him too, I said, I, I don't think we ought to go low level anymore. Uh, I think we ought to do all of our stuff, medium to high altitude uh, and sort that stuff out. And so he kind of came out with an edict, if everybody remembers right on that, 
second or third night that we're not going low anymore. We had a couple guys that did OB, OBD and Bill Shaw uh, went, went low on night three and almost got their asses handed to them uh, and then came back and complained to me about it. Uh, and I kind of reamed them for going low altitude in the, in the first place. Uh, you got told not to. And, uh, and I told both of them, I said, that guidance from Hornberg came from me to Hornberg. So uh, don't come to me looking for looking for help support to go low altitude because I don't think it's there. Um, you know, we're we're talking about um, TFing uh, at night on the first couple of days of the war. Well, that was when that Basra raid occurred. Right. And uh, it's kind of funny that was and you. This won't surprise you, Yogi, that we're flying along there in that two to four mile Yogi trail. And uh, <laughs> I'm number two and I look out number three is lying abreast with me. <laughs> and uh and you know i'm going uh three what are you <laughs> what are you what are you doing up here and anyway he goes chairman push it up and chairman goes i can't push it up i'm on time you know and i can't go any slower uh for the system limitation so anyway so we're all doing this accordion effect uh you know if you're not flying strictly trail you're you're going to get out of position but anyway yeah it, that's kind of funny we're about four miles out 40 40 miles out and uh first of all the roe was we can't be early because the hornets are coming in for the same target off of the gulf okay so we can't really be early and so we, we're thinking about deconflicting i mean they are navy so they may not be on time but uh <laughs> but anyway so T-Bow boinks the targeting pod to the target. We're 40, 50 miles out. And uh, our guidance was to put these Mark 84s on the cracking towers and nothing else on the facility, just the towers. Well, T-Bow boinks the target into the pod and the freaking target is on fire. It is, a, it is a blaze. So there's two things that come to my mind. First of all, I don't think we have to worry about deconfliction with the Hornets because it appears they've come and gone. Yeah. Actually, three things. Second thing is, I don't think we're any restricted anymore to just the cracking tower since the whole facility was on fire. <laughs> and then I got to thinking, what the hell are we going there for? That we're gonna we're gonna bomb a destroyed target. But anyway, it 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 all worked out. Um, until until we were off target, which is where any problems occurred. But uh, that that was kind of a, a rookie mindset. Those three things went through my mind when I see that that target's on fire, and uh, it was uh, that was kind of a unique story that uh, not everybody has. Yeah. What, what yeah, were the targets? I I heard stories. Wasn't there a wasn't there an overcast and the fires were so prevalent that it was like day vfr under the clouds and you guys thought you're going to be sneaking in at night and and you can see everything oh absolutely you could see everything it was like daytime and in fact because of the triple a threat we're jinking at three three to five hundred feet outside of tf limits yeah, but visually. you didn't really you didn't really need tf because you could see and uh so that that was uh the, uh, an, another part of that is, uh, 
the the plan was for one and two to do a mini loft at two and a half miles and everybody else do a max max range loft well um that mini loft would kind of keep you below the weather because it was like a 2000 foot overcast mm -hmm. but the guys doing the max range loft they're in the freaking soup before the bomb even comes off anyway so chairman makes a call everybody because of the threat everybody's going to max range loft well i missed that call so i'm i'm hammered down into two and a half miles i couldn't wait for my ranging to say two and a half because i i wanted to i wanted to go and i'll tell you what you guys you talk about temporal distortion it went 2.7 2.6 and I'm going 2.5 is never going to happen. Anyway, <laughs> as soon as that thing flickered 2.5, I'm up and off and out of there. And, uh, and now I'm trying to find chairman. We were to egress North and regroup and come back home. I couldn't find him. So I said, Frick, I'm going home. <laughs> so I was the first one home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, you know merrick Crouch, merrick yeah, yeah, merrick Crouch. Crouch. yeah he came through the weapon school uh when we started the weapon school and i got i got the opportunity to sit with him for a few hours and talk about that mission uh and all the stuff that took place and how, how we thought teak and donnie ended up in trouble uh and all that kind of stuff so it, it was, was a, a, good, uh, a was, good discussion Merrick was number three, I think, and he drug out and and picked up the. Tr he became tail end Charlie. Uh, we well, ended so up right behind Teak and Donnie, didn't we, he? Yeah, he spun. We kind of mm -hmm. we, we went across the target. One, two, four, five, six, three. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Merrick got to got to see it all. He he was the he was tail end Charlie going through. Uh, even though it wasn't necessarily planned out that way, but that goes back to the the you you, you got to do what you have to do, and uh, that's how we got six planes across the target that night. <laughs> and everybody looks at that was Scotty Scott who eventually became a general, and and everybody's looking at Scotty going, "Dude, your other left." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was also Scotty who was hand flying it at 100 feet, saying, "Say something else," you know. Oh yeah, yeah. That first night, I you know I planned it at 100 feet and told guys just to fly above the box at two or 300 feet until you needed 100. Yeah, have 100 selected in case you need to go down there to do it. But the same thing happened. I mean, that target that I went to had 133 gun emplacements around it. When my bombs hit, it looked like all of them lit up, and we had some SA2s and SA3s in the area. I, I pulled rolled up to 85 degrees of bank and pulled seven G's off the target, looking at the desert floor outside the canopy. It was so light from the AAA and the missiles going by that you could look out and go, it's it's daylight. I don't need the TFR for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as well, in, interesting, you know, we, we, we briefed that whole 22 ship as calm out until we got off the targets. So the, the only calm that was supposed to happen was me saying, it's showtime, green them up. Uh, and so we take off and steep six ship. I don't know what the hell was going on, but there was more calm trying to get that six ship together off the runway 
to get them all in line and, and taken care of. I can remember keying the mic and, and, and telling Steve, either get your guys in order and get off the radios or go home. <laughs> so we, we ended up getting up there and doing all that tanker stuff. And of course you can read in the books about the radar site blowing up. That was 20 miles inside my HUD. I mean, I watched those helicopters blowing up that early warning site as, as we're hit, screaming toward the border and stuff. Um, and I can, I can remember that from that point on, once we got everybody settled and that's a weird thing too, we get to the tankers, this has all been briefed, you know, lights on tankers. We're 150 miles South of the border. I don't care about your lights. And the guy goes, well, we want to do this without our weather radars and stuff. I said, no, use everything you got. I got 22 APG 70s looking downfield. Your weather radars don't mean crap. And so we get up to the tankers, pull up to the tankers. We're splitting into six tankers or whatever it is we're doing. All of them are lights out and their formation sucks. I'm down there at 2,000 feet taking the last bit of gas off the lead tanker. And in my per peripheral vision, I see the number two tanker going by us. <laughs> and I've got guys on the wing of my tanker. <laughs> I told you guys not to do this. Um, but it's, it's funny. We got across the target. And Moon Mullins was my number three that night. And he's flying through just a shitstorm, uh, getting to the target and stuff. And I see number two's bombs go off. And I'm, I'm counting in my mind about the time his should be going off. And I hadn't seen anything yet. And I key the mic and go, hey, dodge dodge three you still with me and and moon and his his normal way goes yep <laughs> followed shortly by bombs going off and we all all head back out but you know the interesting part of that mission too is i briefed you know pink line tsd those of you that went to h2 stay on the west side of it those of us that are going to the other three targets stay on the east side of it and then when you get to the border first thing you do is turn on all your lights and so the, you know, we got the MiG-23 and the MiG-29 in this formation as we're heading home. And, and Cheese Grader is the guy that shot those two airplanes down. I talked to him in the weapons school bar a couple of years after that. And we reminisced on, on how that all came about. Uh, he also went to Southwest and was a captain for Southwest for a number of years too. Um, <clears throat> but we got that whole mix coming up, coming out. And I'm watching, I mean, we passed the MiG-29 off to Steep's flight as it goes past us at about eight miles off the right side. Uh, and I'm looking out that direction in the middle of the dark when I see the wing blow off of this MiG-29. Uh, it's close enough I can see it. Wing comes off, spins down, hits the ground, blows up again, going, what the hell just happened? And of course, I have no idea the sea models are coming in at that point. You know, my, my mind tells me they're still well south of the border um, and so then the MiG-23 blows up about a minute and a half after that. Um, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, somebody's either doing some good work or I have no idea what's going on, uh, and find out later that it's the C models that have done it, but we come out and, you know, everybody's mixed up, you know, from, uh, it's like every plan goes to shit two minutes after you try to execute it. And so I, I've got an idea how many airplanes are in front of me heading to the border but I don't really know who all of them are other than uh, Dipper, who I watched shoot the AIM-9 at, at the MiG-29 and watched the MiG-29 shoot two missiles back at him that both hit the dirt. Uh, so I know where he is and that kind of stuff. And I, I think my wingmen are behind me and all this kind of stuff. And so we get to the border and I flip on my lights 
and a, about 6,000 feet line abreast of me is, is um, uh, Hasty, who flips on his lights and going, okay, you're not supposed to be there. And on the right side of me, about 3,000 feet line abreast of me is someone else who flips on their lights and going, oh, my God, is I'm so glad <laughs> we're, this big sky theory works. You know, what I would have said at that point, if I was you, is, okay, turn your lights back off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i started doing a, you know we're, we're we're basically all to the border so i start running through fuel checks and trying to figure out who needs what and i had briefed everybody in the briefing hey just get enough gas to get back to our cars you know when you get on the boom i i, I should have been more specific i should have said take take gas until you got 7500 pounds and then go home because we, we get up there and, and hasty when I get when I start doing all these fuel checks and stuff, we're still 120 miles, 150 miles from the tankers. He's got 2,800 pounds. Mm-hmm. But okay, I don't know if we're going to make this, but but start zooming, get up as high as you can get up, and I'm I've joined to him to try to try to guide him to the tankers and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking about to book and all these other places where we might be able to go drop him in. But again, it you know, three forty-five, four in the morning. I have no idea whether any of them are lit up or or, or what we'd get into trying to get into them. Uh, and so I'm talking to guys up on the tanker, and I, I don't remember. It might have been Steve Quast or somebody. How much gas you got? Sixteen thousand pounds. Get the hell off the tanker. Get out of the way. And so we're moving people out of the way and trying to organize all this stuff while we're running a rejoin back to these tankers. Uh, and we get we get hasty back on the boom with like 1,100 pounds. Okay, man, if if anything doesn't work here, we're jumping out of it. He's jumping out of a good airplane. But uh, eventually, I, I mean, I, I I made the call. Everybody goes, hey, if you got 7,000 pounds or more, go home. Get off the tankers. Hey, go home. If, if if you guys remember right, when the tankers were doing their lights off stuff, um, that the way I remember that is that was almost the most dangerous part of the war was when we're tanking at night on the on the good guy side yeah eventually uh they took your guidance and you said dude we're going to kill each other up here turn your freaking lights on yeah and they did and and the the rest is history but early on it was like what we got to get through getting gas first uh before we have to go face the bad guys yeah, we eventually get everybody heading home on that first night, and some—I don't remember who—but somebody ended up jet, jettisoning some bombs south of El Carj out in the desert because they didn't think they could land with with live weapons on the airplane, which you can, but you know it's it's not probably not something you want to do every day, but but it's not illegal to do it. So anyway, they jettison these bombs off, and this big explosion happens out there, 15 miles south of south of El Carj. Of course, in the middle of four in the morning in the desert, everybody thinks it's it's somebody breaching the breaching the fence or something, you know. And so that gets everybody stirred up, and all the all all the cops and everybody are just going nuts, and the radio's going nuts. And uh, so we ended up getting back and landing. And I tell you, one of the coolest things of the whole deal was as we taxied back in to go park the jets, the entire flight line looked like the entire tent city was out there waving flags and. Uh, you know, just cheering guys on, counting airplanes, making sure everybody got home and that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that, that one actually brought tears to my eyes that night, you know, just it was an incredible sight. 
I was going to uh, talk about why the Chevy flight was so communicative on the ground. You got to remember, number four was the ops group commander. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Nobody else is talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, that was hilarious. You know, he was uh he was number four, we were number five. We get to H2, drop our bombs. He his scuds target were on the uh, west side. We come off, we drop ours next to the tab V where it's supposed to be. There's a bright spot in the patch map, no big deal. But a hundred mile an hour wind. Of course, you know, by the time we got to 20, 21,000 feet, those bombs after we saw the uh the uh satellite photo of it you know the next day or two it was like oh my god there were 12 uh, impacts but the scud probably has some damage but it wasn't <laughs> taken out and we we come off the target and we start looking for number four because he sh he shouldn't be too far ahead of us next thing you know he's like six miles in front of us and i'm going how was he able to drop this bomb we were two miles behind him in the flare and uh so i who knows but anyways it was actually pretty funny <laughs> i should say that on that first night i think i had a three ship a three ship a six ship uh and a six ship and a four ship so that's 22 airplanes all of them went low altitude except the guys that went to h2 and they did a, a fly up i think at 25 miles uh yep. to get up in the 20s to drop these mark 82s uh on H2 airfield, but all the rest of us were dropping rock eye at 300 feet or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so you, are you going after? Are you going after scuds or airfields or scuds on airfields? Scuds on airfields for H2 anyway, because the plan was to try to keep Israel out of the fight. Didn't want them to be launching into Israel, and so that was our effort to. <clears throat> ensure that the Iraqis couldn't, you know, get things launched. Um, so, but uh, H2 always became a favorite after that. Um, the uh, We'd uh, go do our loiter time, you know, uh, try to keep the uh, scuds out. And then uh, on the way back, uh, Brian Shipman, who was no our number two, uh, if he had dropped all his bombs, we'd send them about five miles ahead of us, supersonic over H2, wait till they start uh, shooting at us in AAA, and then we'd roll in and uh, pop a 500-pounder on one of the AAA pieces. So it was always pretty funny to go, what? It, it, was, it was funny how, how some of this uh, on Western Iraq turned into bombing for quarters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just you do stuff and just go. Okay, there's a there's a tower over there with nothing else going on. Let's go knock the tower down. And we found those two rail rail yards out there that oh, yeah. had a bunch of refrigerated cars yeah. on them. And we'd go blow go blow up a refrigerated rail car just for no good reason other than it was there. You know, do you guys remember that our intel, uh, the availability of it, intelligence information was. Uh, almost too slow to be helpful for us. And so that the, a lot of the target sets were on the back of a napkin that the Wizos traded amongst themselves. Uh, that, that was, that became kind of our frag, if, if yeah. you will. Or the dump target anyway. 
<clears throat> I remember I remember flying on Yogi's wing one night, and we went to H two because Yogi and Polo were dropping LGB, and then we went over to that uh, great big ammo dump, and we didn't really I didn't really know how big it was at the time. That one that was due west of Baghdad, and you know had the railroad tracks that went between the dump and Baghdad. Yeah, and man, you know we had uh, it was uh, Fleener and I. We we had Mark eighty twos on board, and we you know I make my patch map like Reno was talking about. You know because I didn't have a pod, I make my patch maps. I designate and I I drag the PSL through a couple of of, uh, of bunkers, drop those things, and man. I don't know what was in there, but it all went off. You know, I mean, it was red tracers and green tracers from like missiles cooking off and coming out of there. And I remember when we fenced out and crossed the Saudi border on the TSD, I turned around and looked backwards and I could still see that fire burning from a hundred miles away. Yeah. I remember that. And, and we ended up going back there night after night after night, you know, and I remember passing those coordinates that I had on my lineup card to somebody else going, you know, where's that dump target you were hitting it. You know, it's got all that stuff in it. And that thing burned for like three nights. You know, we'd go back and it would still be burning from the night before. Yeah. My question yeah. is, my, how'd you know how to work the PSL? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I couldn't do it now, but back then I could do it, you know. Yeah. You know, I hadn't been out of school that long. So Junior Summons be there. He taught me well, I guess, you know. I went through the <laughs> gestures. You were talking, you know, tie it back to Junior. Um, I went through the, the 460 first. And, yeah, and Junior was one of my... Uh, um, instructors. The PSL was the pattern steering line. What you could do was um, you designate your target and then you enable this line on the radar patch map or, or uh, and and it will align you up on a certain heading to go in and drop your bombs. And so if you've got targets in a row, you can, you know, you can set up and drop those bombs in a string down those two or three different uh, bunkers. And that's all I could do with dumb, dumb bombs. That's the best we could do is just, you know, hope the spacing was pretty accurate and, uh, and, and drop them like that. But not very often used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. Because we yeah, weren't, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't quite to the sport bombing uh, situation where we were dropping them in singles yet. You know, we were still yeah. uh, doing one pass haul ass kind of thing. Well, well that's, was, you know, some of the, some of that sport bombing is what got us in trouble. You know, I, I don't remember who did it, but, we dropped some bombs on some of the fuel cells down there by Al Samo airfield down, down near the South. And that was some of the fuel that, um, the good helicopter for using our army general was going to use for his tanks and stuff <laughs> when they made the big left swoop. And so we got this big order down from Schwarzkopf that went, no more dropping on shit that's not been designated to drop on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, speaking of Schwarzkopf and general rule number one, uh, you know, that, that said no alcohol. Well, after the shooting stopped and we were in whatever, desert calm or de desert peace or whatever, I got a care package from that was that came from Uncle Charlie I have no idea to this day who Uncle Charlie was, <laughs> but it but it was a ginger ale, a two and a half liter ginger ale bottle with whiskey in it. And it was it was addressed to me. And again, like I said, I have no idea who Uncle Charlie is. Oh, but that's hilarious. That, that that went down to the rec tent and uh 
everybody stumbled back to their uh their <laughs> respective hooch uh and uh again like i said to this day i have no clue who uncle charlie is it's not my that uncle funny. it, it yeah. was one of the bros in the squadron that was back at the ranch yeah. and uh hook, hooked his, hooked a brother up downrange well i got a similar story when i was uh after the war flying with the chiefs one of my tent mates was getting care packages like that and i was partaking in a little bit of it so when i went home i went home before him and the first thing i did we land and that day I went to the I went to the class six and bought a bunch of stuff and took it downtown to the UPS store and and uh, and put it in the mail right there. I said, I'm not going to get distracted. And four days later, you know, four days is an eternity when you're living in a tent with a bunch of hairy guys, you know. And so I, I mailed him a care package and my mom, you know, they met my parents met me at Seymour when I landed, you know. And they were like, she was like, you got to do this right now. And I said, yeah, Bob, I got to do this right now. This is, you know, this hey, is a, high on my list of priorities. After 30 years, I may have just found out who Uncle Charlie is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. And uh, um, here's another quick story for you. As you know, when we grew up, you know, lieutenants flying the F-4, we thought the next war was going to be like Vietnam. You know, we were training for another Vietnam and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, Vietnam, I, I know those guys work hard and sacrifice and a lot of guys died and that kind of stuff. But to me, it seemed a little bit, you know, romantic in a way, the way the war was designed, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, you know, you're going to, you're going to be stationed in Thailand. You're going to take off. You're going to fly in North Vietnam. You're going to drop your, you know, drop your bombs on this rail bridge and, you know, come home back to the club in Thailand, you know, that kind of stuff you know, and, you know, go to the club and enjoy a cold beer and that kind of stuff. So I get over there for desert storm and, you know, we're living in a tent with a bunch of other dudes and no refrigerator, no ice, you know, we're drinking hot Kool-Aid, you know, and there's no women, there's no booze. And I'm going, I'm in the wrong war. You know, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> you know, where's, where's the beer? Where's the girls? You know, that kind of stuff. It was just so funny living in a tent with a bunch of guys, you know, and going, this is not my idea of war. You know, <laughs> yeah, there, there, uh, couple, couple of different things we, we can talk about. You know, after the first couple of days of low altitude, we went to medium altitude, and both squadrons ended up doing a whole bunch of Western Iraq scud search, you know, hunting, dropping bombs on nothing because uh, we weren't successful at all at finding mobile scud launchers. Uh, and all, all the reports after the war have, have confirmed that. But we blew up a bunch of trucks and so we're out there one night and it's Polo's like his first or second night with uh, LGBs on the airplane. I've got LGBs. Number two's got dumb bombs. So we're dropping a bomb every 10 minutes on a road intersection up there trying to scare somebody that's not there. And AWACS comes up and goes, uh, we need you to go find this uh, Winnebago that has a high value target in it. Oh, this sounds interesting. So we go racing up toward the Syrian border, which is this thing supposed to be coming back from the Syrian border toward Baghdad or whatever. And, and we, we find this bread truck looking thing. It looks like a Winnebago or whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm confirming with AWACS, is this the guy? He's, he's this range from me, I'm bearing and all this kind of stuff. He goes, yeah, that's it. So we roll up and I'm talking to Polo about this going, you know, LGBs are not created for moving targets. So we're going to have to drop this thing and keep the spot 
way out there in front to until you get down to like eight seconds time of flight and then just let the spot drift back to the target uh, and hopefully it'll come close uh, and so we we kind of loop up and we're dropping from behind this guy as he's going down the highway at probably 50 miles an hour and drop this bomb off and do an arc to, to so you can use the pod to see it the whole time and gets to about eight seconds time of flight and starts moving the cursor back and cursors on the truck when the when the time of flight goes out but you know sometimes the time of flight was off by a second and a half or whatever yeah. so the bomb blows up like a second second and a half after the fact and it's maybe 30 yards off to the left and probably 300 feet behind the truck so it doesn't kill the truck but now the truck's doing 110 miles an hour <laughs> we roll back around and do the same thing again and this time he keeps it out there and guides it out there and I swear the, the second bomb looks like it hits the brace in the windshield of this of this <laughs> truck. I see the truck do this as the as the pictures bloom into full white. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we get back and figure out it's not the ace of spades. It's yeah. probably some dude delivering bread to the next town yeah. uh, that's gone <laughs> gone and met his maker. You know, in the middle of the middle of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's another night we're out there in Stansbury and his four ship were out there in front of us. And, and we're, we're coming in, he's heading out and we're, we're talking to each other about what he's seen and if there's anything going on. And he had CBU 58 on his airplanes for some reason that night. Um, and so we're, we're talking, he goes, yeah, I sent three and four home 30 minutes ago. So, you know, you got the space and I'm heading home and yada, yada, yada. And so we make one pass up, up that western quarter and we're turning around coming back and I look down and I see all these little sparkles on the ground just three enormous loops of little sparkly white things going what the hell is that so I call AWACS and go is anybody else in the airspace out here with us he goes well yeah the and I can't remember the call sign but is the three and four of of Stan's flight are still in the airspace and so I get on their freak and go guys you here yeah, we're still out here. Just dropped some bombs. Your flight lead left 10 minutes ago. What the hell are you doing still out here? Get your ass to the tanker and go home. <laughs> and so they leave, duck their tail between their legs and leave. And, and of course, when I get back, I go find stands over in the 335th tent and go. And he's so pissed off, he can't even stand it. I mean, he's 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 madder than I am about his guys being out there. I said, what, what the hell happened? He goes, I don't know. I told them to go home and they just, they had some problem. I don't know if it was a, uh, 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 a pod problem, a jamming pod problem or whatever. They had some problem that they were going to go back to the tank or get enough gas to go home and get the airplane fixed. And somehow they, they resolved their problem in the airplane and <clears throat> come back into the country and don't even call and tell stands are coming back in. <laughs> and so it's like oh my god what is going on uh but it's hilarious i'd never seen cbu 58 drop from twenty thousand feet or whatever they did the circles were probably five miles and around of these little yeah. bomblets going off you know it's like okay you didn't you didn't kill anything with that thing <laughs> <laughs> there's always, always some stuff like that going on out there well, and the, uh, our, our mission evolved over time. It used to be scuds when the ground uh, war started. Then we had kill boxes up the yin-yang, and uh, you had to hunt within those kill boxes to take out Iraqi tanks. 
armored personnel carriers and everything. And you'd stay there until you're out of bombs and then go home, which, you know, was something we'd never trained to before. Yet, uh, yeah, you know, up, something like a, a 16 by 60 miles. What's that? We blew up a lot of tanks and artillery pieces doing yep. that. Uh, yeah, yeah that's, So I'm sure we made it the, easier uh, on the Army and the Marines to get through there. Yeah, yeah, I remember the guidance changed that we can only hit tanks, armor, and artillery. And I was at the TACC then, when that some of that was going on with the kill boxes. And uh, there was a 100-millimeter AAA piece out there that was, you know, tracers were whistling up to 30,000 feet. And the guys... Guys about, you know, about got shot and they said, they called up to the TCC and they said, can we, can we bomb this triple A piece? You know, and I'm, I was silly. I, I asked for guidance. And I go, Hey, these guys, you know, there's a triple A, triple A piece, you know, in their kill box, giving them trouble. And they go, no, you can only bomb tanks, armor and artillery. You know, so I go, you, know, I go you can't bomb it, you know, and they were, and so they landed and call me and just bitch me out about that, you know? So the next night, the same thing. Hey, we got this hundred millimeter triple A piece that's giving us trouble. Can we bomb it? And I go, you're clear to bomb it. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not asking anybody now. I'm making the decisions. That was the first problem. They asked for permission. Yeah. 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 The triple exactly. A piece shot at you first. Okay. Now you're you're a fair yeah. game. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that goes back what Mother what, what Doug talked about an hour and a half ago with asking permission and just making things happen. Yeah. That's the one thing I figured out out of this real quick was once you get off the ground, you go do whatever you have to to get the mission to done. Do. Yeah, exactly uh, right. And so it's yeah. funny when we did that kill box stuff, you know, you'd, you kind of get yourself scared to death on those first three nights because you're getting tons of stuff shot at <laughs> you. And then you spend mm -hmm. a week up here at 40,000 feet dropping a bomb every 10 minutes on nothing out there. And then I ended up going back to Takadam Airfield a couple of times when they put when they dispersed the MIGs out in the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to go kill those things. And we're down down in the in the fray in Baghdad with all that crap getting shot out of Baghdad. And you go, oh crap, now I'm scared again. And then we <laughs> then we go back and do Western Iraq a little bit. And then we do the kill boxes and we're dropping down in there where stuff's getting shot at us. So it's it's kind of funny the emotional you know, roller coaster that you're on with all that stuff. But it was funny too, you know, the, the frag kept kept fragging us into the kill boxes at 24 or 28,000 feet or whatever. Mm -hmm. First night I went in there, I keyed the IFF and went there's 60 F-16s in that, in that block. So we just left it in mill power and climbed up to 48,000 feet above the, above the Eagles and every, everybody went in, dropped down in our box, did that stuff, put it in mill power and climbed up to 48 or 50 to go home I'm out of everybody's hair and not have to worry about running into some little lawn dart that's out here in my way. So, yeah, there was a story about uh, one crew that was in a, in a kill box and they had remember one box was designated as a dump target. If you had trouble and you had to go jettison your bombs or something, well, they'd move the, the, the jettison box to their box and unbeknownst to them, they're, they're flying around. <laughs> they see these white streaks in the flare going through going, man, somebody's raining bombs down from up above. You know, come to find out, they'd been moved into the dump box. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> thanks, well, thanks guys, Siri. Yeah. yeah. When um, the uh, Iraqis left Kuwait, and then um, um, they wanted to add sorties to go take out the uh, uh, retreating forces. That's when I was the supervisor of flying, the SAW, 
And uh, Steep calls me and goes, hey, you want to go fly? So uh, maintenance could add two more airplanes with uh, uh, Mark 82s. And off we went. It was pretty funny. My first time flying with Steep in combat. So yeah. it, was, it was actually a, a hoot. Yeah. What, what was yeah, the that's a great story? That's a great story, Reno. Um, that's the uh, highway of death scenario. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Where the 111s you know, uh, were misaligned and dropped on uh, off to the side. And anyways, it, yeah, it was we in, were the we were the third choice, and we oh, were the yeah. ones that were that were effective because everybody else came and went unsuccessfully. Mm -hmm. So what's that story? And, um, so, so the highway of death was the retreating uh, column of Iraqi infantry yes. coming out of Kuwait. So you were the third choice to go and attack that. Who were the first two then? So 111. Uh, who else? Vi Vipers. Vipers. Oh. So the Vipers yeah. missed, the 111s missed, then you guys came in and cleaned up. I think I think they got they were a weather abort. I think they couldn't get underneath the the underneath the weather <laughs> with the. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Reno, but it was a crummy weather day. It was, and I think it was at least about 5,000 feet at the ceiling until we broke out. And that's when we got the uh, SA-8 uh, lock on. And Steve, <laughs> as I'm, I'm dispensing chaff, because it's right on the beam, I'm going, oh, let's just confuse it. And Steve goes, are we okay? I go, yep, we're fine, press. <laughs> So it was actually, uh, that was our crew coordination. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I got it, no problem, bing, bing, bing. And uh, we kept going. We dropped, uh, tried to slow the convoy down. So and yeah. that was our, our two ship with 12 Mark 82s. Yeah, I think people forget how bad the weather was in Desert Storm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, they well, think it's clear and severe it was, in the desert. Some of it was self-generated by the oil well fires. Yeah. If they lit those things on fire, if you went over in the Kuwait city area, you might not have three miles viz. Mm -hmm. Right. Going up there trying to drop stuff and go, I got, I'm basically doing this in the weather. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you guys know, I, I flew in the back seat with Glosson the day after they signed the peace accord. And he well, wanted and, to go and off. You and you took a four ship and uh, you uh, guys, uh, the photo shoot. No, no, no. This oh. was just just he and I in a single airplane. Oh, okay. Oh, it might have been a two ship. I can't remember. But he wanted to go down and he wanted to fly up around Kuwait City, go over the tents where they signed the peace accord, and we're doing and looking at the oil well fires and all that kind of stuff. And then he heads up the Euphrates toward Baghdad, and there's a little town up there, forty miles up the river that I'd just gotten shot at two nights ago with eighty-five yeah. millimeter stuff. And so I'm I'm talking to him about hey don't fly over that town up here in 40 miles just come 20 right and, and miss it by five or six miles or whatever, and he still keeps trundling up the up the river right straight toward it, and we get like 15 miles from it. And I'm talking to him this whole time about hey don't fly over this town, and so we get like 15 20 miles from it. I just grab the stick and take the airplane away from him and pull about seven G's out to the right, head out there a little ways, avoid this town by about 10 miles bring him back to the river and put him on the river heading toward Baghdad again. So you can have the airplane back now. Said, what was that about? Said, I told you not to fly over that fucking town. I'm not going to get shot down the day after the war because you flew over a place. I told you not to. 
<laughs> oh, okay. I did. I did. I didn't understand what you meant. Well, okay. Hey, uh, I, solved, I solved the problem. <laughs> would we? Would we be remiss if we didn't talk about the uh, air-to-air kill with an air-to-ground weapon? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Chewy and Bennett. Chewy Pocky. You 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 want to tell that story or you know it? Well, I'll, I'll, you know this ten percent true, right? <laughs> <laughs> we were out there in support out, out west in support of uh, you know we're scud hunting. It, our our mission kind of became mobile scud hunting because early on when we started going against the scuds, I think it was three or four hours after we started doing that, that all the fixed sites were destroyed. Okay, they had they all had to be resurveyed. They they all had a big hole right in the middle and with dirt coming up, you know, where the missile would go. Anyway, so it became only mobile scuds. And uh, we were less than effective, but we were an effective deterrent for them to, for those mobile scuds to come out of their hole. Right. And it must be, it, it must be a little bit unnerving to uh, be driving one of those trucks and uh, look behind you and there's a smoking hole where you were parked at 30 seconds ago. And uh, anyway, you, he's got to think, hey, my timing was pretty good to get, get the hell out of there. But uh, on guard frequency, these uh, special forces guys came up on guard and said, hey, any allied airplane any Allied airplane, this is whatever, Snake 2-1. And, of course, uh, TB and Chewy and company were sitting there going, who, who the hell? It had a British accent. sound like Steve. And uh, uh, anyway, they're going, is this, you know, is this for real? Finally, got on a discreet frequency, started talking to them. And they basically said, we're dug in here. We're hunkered down. And the bad guy, we're about 10 miles away. And the bad guys know we're here. We are friggin' toast if you can't do anything. And uh, they're loading up. They're loading up their operators on a on a chopper right now at the airfield. And so they throw the pot over there and go, "Well, we see the chopper. It's running." Um, and uh, they go, "That's it." And they're coming after us. So we we are sitting ducks here. And so uh, TB and them get on a horn with AWACS and say, hey, we're getting this tasking from, you know, somebody on the ground that wants us to hit this target. We're looking for approval. And, of course, AWACS says, uh, stand by. And, and they eventually said, hey, there'll be no standing by here. I mean, we, th this, this is an urgent need. Anyway, they finally get approval to drop. They dropped their GBU-10 or whatever, and you can imagine what a GBU-10 does to a chopper. But anyway, and while after they let the bomb go, and before it gets there, you know, it's got 20 or 30 seconds time of flight, the chopper takes off. So it's airborne, and, and Chewie's just lazing away, and all of a sudden that that uh, chopper is no more. And, uh, and evidently there was quite a celebration uh, on the radio from the, from the special forces guys that were watching it, watching this all happen. And they, they basically ended up saving the day. 
And of course, in typical uh, earwax fashion, uh, they're coming off target. Everybody's slapping high fives and shit. And uh, AWAX comes up and says, uh, confirm DID. <laughs> <laughs> and those guys are going, uh, dude, it's dark out here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the range of emotion, it went from extreme jubilation to, oh, did we just screw the friggin' pooch here? And that's when Smile was talking about there's sometimes a, a fine line between an attaboy and an ah shit. <clears throat> yeah yeah that's that's incredible video with that drop uh i was actually surprised that that the bomb the, the fusing went off you, you'd have thought it might have gone right through that helicopter not blown up till it hit the ground yeah because it takes a fairly substantial impact for the fusing to actually engage in a bomb like that but it kind of obliterated that helicopter well, have, yeah. uh, Yogi, haven't watched that video. Did I get it kind of right? Yeah, yeah. More than ten percent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, my then, the uh, what I heard was it was hovering to uh, drop off some of their forces to go attack the uh, special forces guys, and they were still hovering when uh, and it was confirmed by the special forces guys that uh, it was airborne. Um, so it was. An interesting story. Yeah. I worked yeah, with, those several weeks I worked with those SAS guys probably three nights out there in Western Iraq. Hmm. You'd be tooling around out there, dropping your bomb every five or 10 minutes or whatever. And it's like you said, some, some bloke comes up on the radio and goes, Hey, I need some help, you know, and we, we dropped, we dropped a half a dozen bombs for him on three different nights. Yeah. Trying to get him out of trouble or whatever. Yeah. Then several weeks, after uh, after Chewy dropped the bomb on the helicopter, uh, I was sitting duty hog in the chiefs when the headquarters called down and said, we're going to award him an air-to-air -air kill. I took that phone call. Mm -hmm. They called down. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.